Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Strip by Sia, your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people in between. I am your host, Steph Sia, aka Kimchi on stage. I am a stripper based here in Vancouver, Canada. I am also a former sugar baby and I'm also a digital content creator. So I have an OnlyFans, I do online work, custom videos, etc. I have created this podcast about two years ago and I'm interviewing different sex workers um, or people that are within our organization or people within our community that support us and basically with the name to destigmatize sex work. And I'm not gonna ramble on too much today because I have a very, very quick, tight hour with our exciting guest all the way from the UK. I am bringing on Dr. Raven Bowen on to the show today to speak about duality, to speak about sex work, Brexit, the UK versus Canada, everything. We have an hour and I don't know how we're gonna get through it all, but we're gonna try to. So Dr. Raven Bowen, are you there? I am here. Please call me Raven. Okay. <laughs> so to be here. We're so excited to have you and thank you so much for coming onto the show today. Uh, I have so many questions for you and we're going to try to just get through it all because we're like, whoa, that's a lot. This is going to be more than an hour, but we're just going to try to do our best in terms of tackling it all. But basically, um, you are the, the current CEO of National Ugly Mugs based in the UK. You were also serving as the executive director at Pace, which was on a couple episodes ago. And you do a lot of research, a lot of work in sex work. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, 27 years of research? <laughs> What's the number? It has been, it's, been, it's been quite a few years. I, I walked into Pace in 1995. Wow. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, I deny my, my government age. I always pretend I'm at least 10 years younger, but actually, you know, it's been quite a long time and a long journey. And surprisingly, things are so cyclical because you keep revisiting the same issues because we're not fully addressing the core root causes of things. So everything seems like it's coming round and round again, um, which is the frustrating thing about being around so long. (laughs) (laughs) But there is progress. There has been progress. Absolutely. So, I mean, you have done an extensive amount of research, and I know you by way of Dr. Tamara O'Doherty, who I went to SFU with, and she's on the show. I was guest lecturing at her class and everything and she's an amazing human being goes to her episode if you haven't already yeah she's Tamara's one of my mentors uh we spent a, a lot of time organizing together she was up with pace for some time also worked on pivot and some other um adjacent strategies around human trafficking so yeah she's she's amazing when she calls you respond <laughs> so i'm really glad that you uh you had a chance to have exposure to her she's she's absolutely a brilliant human being She's wonderful, but we're not going to be talking about her today. We're going to be speaking all about you. (laughs) We're speaking about you, your work, your career, uh, the book that you've just written as well, which we're going to get into in much more detail later on today. But where did you want to start? I mean, Um, (laughs) chronologically. I guess, oh gosh, you don't want to talk about that. But um, but I could just like maybe talk about some of the organizing that started in in Vancouver because I did... uh, start my career as a practitioner in Vancouver doing outreach and support to street-based workers primarily. Uh, we were situated in Mount Pleasant at the time, so wow. uh, Mount Pleasant, downtown east side, yes. and then, yeah, we had a couple of locations. We partnered with Vandu Area Network Drug Users. We've done a whole bunch of things around um, decrim, safety, support, uh, confronting violent predators, lots of partnerships with 
with police and other organizations over the years. Um, and it's really great to see that how PACE has evolved, um, mm -hmm. but still remains grounded in some of the, the core principles that uh, many of us, um, you know, kind of dug the ground for to make it happen. And there are lots of uh, individuals that contributed so after that, but concurrently, mm -hmm. I was at PACE for like 12 years, but I was yeah. currently um, involved in the BC Coalition of Experiential Communities. And so that was a group that was more around policy advocacy, and we supported and negotiated a lot of research projects, and And um, Living in Community was one of those that was launched through some of our involvement, and oh, wow. the map van, and yeah. there's all kinds of things that came about through that work, a lot of international harm reduction involvement. We did a lot of reports yes <laughs> um, just focusing on all of the issues that we found um in vancouver around violence and safety and you know um just inclusion and respect and recognition of um, the lives of sex workers and trying to fight against some of the displacement and criminalization and just sheer disrespect um that this population was suffering and particularly among you know indigenous populations and, and people mm -hmm. of color um, and impoverished populations and women and trans and yeah. men in sex work. Uh, we helped launch the, um, the BC Coalition of Experiential Men that then wow. evolved into Hustle and then uh, they're now situated with the Health Initiative for Men. So there's like a lot of little budding things that that I was involved in, but I was, all, I was not alone. I was involved with, with quite a, a large um, community of folks that's spread out and did their own thing um, wow. and then just grew the movement in the ways that they could based on what their priorities were so mm -hmm. um, it was a fun time in organizing uh, wow. in the 90s and early 2000s but really um, a difficult time because you know we had serial predators on the loose we had yes. serial killers on the loose yes we had, um, a lot going on and uh, unfortunately those conditions still persist yeah, no, absolutely. And I know you mentioned like, oh, I, lo I listened to the episode of Pace and stuff too. And like you, you were mentioning, this is off the air, but like how much things have changed, but also things have kind of stayed the same as well. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I think because Pace is preliminary or primarily a buy and for organization, they stay grounded in that. Mm -hmm. There are times when those sorts of messages and those kinds of initiatives get co-opted by other um, populations and other groups, and I think that uh, PACE has managed to stay um, sort of authentic to that. Yeah, um, there, you know, there's and uh, they're serving a range of, of populations, but I think that essentially one PACE surviving through all of the ups and downs that it's been through. It started in an apartment, as I said, with yeah. Latin, but then you know there were times when. Pace with, or when Pace was homeless, when we were operating out of a right. house or an apartment, <laughs> or something. like you know the way the things that people sacrificed to to, to keep our organization going, um, and unfortunately, some of the people who've contributed the most are no longer uh, with us. Right. Um, but you know, I think that the for Pace existing as long as it has and still being meaningful and still I think the woman in the episode described this her dream job and that yeah. makes me just, just makes me smile yeah you know, for sure as long as it's somebody's dream job you know, <laughs> then, then you know it, yeah the work the sacrifice was all worth it definitely definitely I mean and this was just considering this was all your work just based in Vancouver in Canada 
How did you get yourself over to the UK? Was it research that led you there? Was it an opportunity or how did you find yourself in the UK? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of both because I was born in the UK, actually. I was born in London, so okay, okay. But I'm a dual citizen. Um, there we go. And I thought, you know, at some point when I ever grew up, I would move to the UK and explore what that is. Um, my dad served in the military and the police force, and he'd always talk a lot about um, going back to England and, and experiencing that. Um, so I had the opportunity to, I, like, I went back to school mid-career. There was one point when I was pretty much fed up. I decided <laughs> to do my undergrad and then do my master's as protest degrees, really. Um, <laughs> Like there, you know, there's just some limits sometimes to the advocacy you can do when you yeah. don't have credentials, unfortunately. Right. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get your damn credentials then. <laughs> um, so and so I went over to the UK. I got I won an international scholarship to do my PhD um, with wow. uh, this wonderful woman named Professor Maggie O'Neill at, the, at when she was at University of she was at Durham at the time. Okay. Um, and then later we finished um, at York. We moved to York, but. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a little bit of personal and a little bit of research, and that drove me uh, to go to the UK. And I just thought I have to seize the opportunity to see my birthplace and yeah. also to explore what sex work is like in that context and mm -hmm. explore this topic of duality specifically um, in a country that is forty times smaller than Canada, yeah, but has twice our population. Yeah, so, you know, it was, it, like it. it it was an opportunity to explore how that manifests. Absolutely. There. Yeah, for sure. And like from there, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you then started working at National Ugly Mugs or how did that yeah. happen? So well, at the tail end of my PhD, <laughs> there was like the, 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 it's our CEO job at NAM was posted twice while I was in the UK. Okay. And the first time I looked at it, I was like, oh, okay, I think it was like 2017. I looked at it, I'm like, mm, nah, I'm busy. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to do, I was on the board of Scotpad. We were trying to do uh, the decrim bill for wow. Scotland. And there was like lots of, that we had on the go. And I thought, okay, well, that seems like a really neat opportunity, but I can't go for it now. And then it came up again oh in 2018. God. So I thought, hmm, like it seems... The, the role kind of coalesces a number of things in terms of advocacy, research, mm -hmm. needs for trying to work around uh, violence prevention. It, it sort of ticked a lot of boxes for me in terms because I didn't want to go do the PhD and then go into academics necessarily because I, I don't consider myself like a career academic, right? Okay. I, yep. I saw this as like a, a vehicle right. like, to come back to do to do to affect change so yeah. you know as, as a practitioner so um it, it seemed to have that perfect blend of the academics the activism and the service delivery um to to change conditions for people so i thought oh my god so i competed for it <laughs> and then ended up uh, winning the role in yeah. late 2018. amazing amazing and can you tell the audience a little bit about numb as well just because we actually do have quite a bit of uk listeners too so i'm sure they would love to hear about that great sure and one of the things that appealed to me about numb was it was narrower in scope than pace ah. <laughs> they do everything like NUM, yes. yeah numb focuses on providing uh, uh victim support survivor support to adults who've been harmed in sex industries mm -hmm. so we have a national reporting and alerting mechanism where uh, sex workers and others document those who are perpetrating harms against sex workers. We process those reports. 
and then we share them in the form of alerts for um, people to avoid pe- uh, dangerous people and conditions. Oh, interesting. And then we have, yeah, so that, that's, and it's like digitized. So it's because right. uh, before in the UK and in other countries, you see that there are these sort of isolated, quote unquote, bad date lists that they used to be called, but dangerous. Yeah dangerous persons list right um but this is a way of creating a national one so that offenders don't can't just move from one place to another and start offending and there's no tracking yes, so we're really, really we're cool. the sort of centralized um mechanism for that and then we also yeah. provide like um casework victim support like individualized support for survivors of harm and then mm-hmm. we support them to seek justice and healing so that could be in the criminal justice system or criminal legal system, um, but mostly outside of it. <laughs> um, and yeah, for healing and recovery and all that stuff. Um, wow. And then we work to prevention, on prevention and community education and advocacy and all kind, all the things that come alongside wow. um, the, the service delivery. And we have access to quite a bit of data on victimization and because we hire sex workers on staff as well. That's the other thing. Amazing. Where yeah, this is not, um, this a rescue organization. We are right. primarily by and for um, in in the ways that are most important um, in terms of service delivery and um, strategic direction of the organization and all that. So um, we do research that's led by sex workers that are based on the things that they're they're seeing and trends and data things they want to respond to. Mm-hmm. But that element is new. So we've okay. only implemented that in the last couple of years. Wow. Um, but I know that I couldn't run an organization without sex workers around. Yeah, for you sure. Know, active and former, <laughs> like, cause that's, you know, that's how you know what the priorities are. That's Absolutely. how you direct and run an organization and be effective. So, um, so we're, we're working in a space that has, you know, challenging politics mm-hmm. that, you know, there's a huge move, and you've seen that in Canada, where yes. it's a, there's this movement around criminalizing and around um, ending demand as a way. Somehow, there's lot they have logic that states that, or they some people believe that ending demand means women will be safe, sex workers will be right. safe, and, and everything will be roses. And um, <laughs> those of us who kind of weigh facts and are interested in sort of um, research um, recognize that that's not. You that's know, not the case. necessarily the approach to yeah. um, deal with harms against sex workers or to deal with violence and, and gender-based violence. So um, there are those toxic policy environments and political environments that exist in both Canada and the U.S. and the U.K. In sorry. the U.K., yeah. Uh, and the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> that too, <laughs> I'm not forgetting about them. them <laughs> wow. But it's always like negotiating for safety of sex workers. You, you, you'd think that no matter what the politics safety would be a priority but yeah. actually that's it's not it's necessarily the case like yeah the people who are not in favor or people who are in favor of criminalization don't necessarily jump on board for our safety agenda which is quite surprising yeah and it's really sad to see that as well like with your research primarily in canada and the uk do you see any like really obvious similarities or really obvious differences with your research um, I mean, it's a really think, broad question. You, because Canada's huge and the UK's huge and very diverse, yeah. right? So I think that there are pockets of very progressive politics. I think mm-hmm. Vancouver in particular has had a unique history um, around, you know, violence against sex workers. So the policies and the strategies and practices in place in Vancouver aren't necessarily true in other parts of, of Canada and would also 
not mirror anything that you could see in the UK. Right. Um, I think that, you know, the, some of the community safety strategies are not necessarily hearing from sex working communities about their unique harms mm. and their unique vulnerabilities. So a lot of these strategies in both countries are implemented without that voice. Right. And there, there, as we were saying before, there's this move to uh, like this sort of moral agenda to eliminate sex industries and eliminate the sale of sex. Right. Period. Yeah. Um, and so at all of those manifestations, so, you know, some people see that as a worthwhile pursuit. Some people think that sex is part of our society. Mm-hmm. Consuming adult content should be something that free adults are allowed to do. Right. Um, and But the people who provide that content, provide those services, should be free of exploitation, should have choices, should not be in survival situations, etc. So I'm right. more of the latter camp. Yeah. Freer society. For where sure. People can choose the kind of work and not necessarily criminalize people um, for illegal activity, like for legal activities, mm-hmm. um, but to support industries in regulating and managing their own risk. Yeah. Um, I think that strategic involvement from police and the state and, uh, you know, how we choose to regulate um, is important, but has to be guided by the people who are working in those yeah, industries. Yeah, of course. You have to incorporate the people that you're going to be governing, you know, it's just, I feel like that's common sense. No. <laughs> Yeah, it is, but not, you know, I think that if you're, if some people are defining sex workers as vulnerable adults, then they feel they have the right to speak for workers and not necessarily um, hear what their needs are and to move in that, in in the direction that serves the interests of sex workers. There Mm -hmm. is, I think, less of an interest in doing that and more of an interest in eliminating what people might deem as immoral activity. Right. Right. Okay. Let's move on. I, I would have so many more questions on that, but I'm like, we have to start talking about the book. <laughs> so, like, this is like the first opportunity I've had to speak to an industry expert about the book. So yay. I would love to hear what popped for you and what your what what impressions you, you got as well. Absolutely. So the book we're talking about here, uh, Raven wrote, Work, Money, and Duality. Oh, there we go. <laughs> She's showing me a picture. <laughs> Work, money, duality, trading sex as a side hustle. And I thought this was really interesting because it, honestly, it really rang true for me because as a person that practices duality, that has a square job and practices sex work, say, on the side, it really, like, I, I resonated with it a lot. And it was really interesting, like, a lot of the research that you were doing and the perspectives that you're writing on, like, I know I mentioned it to you before we started recording, but even just like the separation that like language can cause, um, the differences of like the racism that happens in the UK, how what that looks like, who they target, um, also like the mobility as well. Like I thought those that those pieces were really interesting to me and and things that I had never really thought about. But then again, I'm also here in Canada too, so like. It was it's really, really interesting. It was a good read. Um, it's available so, now, I think. No. Is, is it available now in Canada or? Yeah, it's available yeah. in Canada. Um, Amazon sells it, I think. But you can get it from Policy Plus. You can get it from the publishers. There you and go. I can give your um, 
community a discount code for it. But so mm-hmm. yeah, that thing about duality is like people. I interviewed people who were blending sex work and square jobs, mm-hmm. and some were doing it, you know, as a means to exit into or transition into mainstream square work or mainstream sex work. So they were seeing it as more of a transition hustle. Right. But then some individuals were, you know, trying to pay off like debts or trying to, you know, had had a project in mind. So they had an end date in mind. So they said they said they're gonna blend these two um, jobs in these really, you know, diverse industries in order to to get on the property ladder or to, you know, to achieve some particular thing. Right. Um, and then they were the population of folks who just decided that they don't ever want to be poor, that they yeah. want to supplement jobs in either industry forever mm-hmm. um, so that they'll always have that versatility and that flexibility because, you know, relying on one job meant like a, a form of slavery for them yes, <laughs> yes. like you feel quite trapped right it's totally. like you're a wage slave and you yes. you know have one source of income you really feel um that you don't have the flexibility to even sometimes prioritize your health and safety and that's in sex work and in, in square industry so duality 100%. provided what we call flex security yes. so it provided like that income and the security and the flexibility to um to do the kinds of things you want to do in, in life without mm-hmm. feeling uh, trapped in one form of employment or another, particularly with low paying jobs. Yes. <laughs> or, you know, yes. or your service industry jobs, right? So mm-hmm. um, where you just do so much emotional labor in whether that service industry role is in sex work or, or square industries. And some of the folks who were the most stressed out were the ones who were, <laughs> or their square job was also in the service industry. Yeah. Um, and so that was quite quite a lot for them. But yeah, it was just mapping the practices in in that intersection of sex work and square work because most of the research and most studies don't even talk about this population. Like no. they bypass, they either talk about it as like this chaotic people flipping in between employment and not mm-hmm. having stability but they don't talk about it as a strategic way to involve in, to um to involve yourself in work yeah and a strategic way to work they, they it's always painted as a quite chaotic yeah and i really really enjoyed that because as you mentioned like i have never heard of any formal research doing anything on this or even i was never able to connect with anyone in my community that i know had a vanilla job and also was doing sex work. In fact, like the group, the sex worker groups that I am in, I actually got flack for doing that, and I I got attacked um, for for taking up space because I didn't do as much sex work as my peers. And yes, that is something <laughs> that I didn't get into in the book, huh. and I would. If I'm ever able to do a larger study, I want to do that because there there's like there's phrases like. Um, specifically for people, you know, they call their derogatory phrases. You hear that, you know, you hear things like hobby, hobby ho and yes. things like that for people who aren't fully in the game. And, mm-hmm. you know, that whole saying that there ain't no such thing as, as halfway crooks. Like, yes. you know, like there, there's a belief that either you're in it and you're, or you're in not. it or you're, or you're not. So yeah. you're not seen as really fully a sex worker or really fully, you know, um, yeah, so there, there is that lateral pressure that happens, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, that's something that I think there needs to be more investigation of, Absolutely. Um, but, but it is that, yeah, it's a ways that we always find to 
set ourselves apart above better than other populations, but that yes. it's it for dancers. I mean, you think that's more of the norm that they're yeah. doing something else on the side. Of course they are. Like most people are doing side hustles. Yeah. Um, Especially but, Vancou- in yeah, Vancouver. Sure to like to yeah. I mean, like it, it just kind of made me curl in, back into my shell a little bit too. And I felt like I could never really talk about it or really express because they're like, I felt like I needed to validate the type of work that I did and I had to be like, well, I've done this for X amount of years and but at the same time I feel like I shouldn't have to prove myself to anyone. To have yeah. to like prove the sex work that I do. I'm in this community. I've been in this community, but I also as like the book suggested, like I like to be comfortable. I like to have some security when it comes to my income and like when I compare the money I get from sex work to my vanilla job, it's like, okay, well I can make this in a couple days and yeah. or work a month, like, <laughs> you know, and slave yeah. away behind my desk, behind my laptop. So. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, you know, for sex workers who like, I think that there's an opportunity for sex workers to embrace the diversity that is the industry. And that includes people who are dabbling people who are mm-hmm. in it for just, exploring their sexuality and then people who are in it like hardcore like there there's incredible diversity across the the types of work and the market and the populations and um unfortunately it, it just seems like that's a hangover from mainstream industries or from other ways that we tend to oppress each other um or judge each other but right. you know for sex workers who live dualized they feel like that's the best way to be a sex worker because they're not burned out necessarily if they if they're overwhelmed by all of the um like the work involved in nurturing clientele or providing services clientele or you know they can take the breaks that they need to to stay healthy um and and to not have to rely on sex work Mm full-time um because they felt that that was the worst way to take be involved in sex industries just like anything else if you have a job flipping burgers and that's your only source of income you know if you're exploited in that role that's gonna that's gonna be quite damaging yeah Um, and then you have no escape from it but the ways that they were working they could take breaks they could be more selective about Mm -hmm. who they saw they could also take breaks and control the level of work they do in square jobs and it just gave them a lot of freedom and and flexibility that they wouldn't find um anywhere else necessarily so yeah yeah. definitely I I want to go back on your point about like oppression in in our own community and like going more into the topic of uh, horarchy because um, yeah I, I had mentioned this to to Tamara and she's like you have to speak to Raven she's like the perfect yeah. person to speak about horarchy um, did you want to because there's so many different kinds of horarchy too I mean we could start off with the pyramid and that was something that I had I had used in my guest lecture in her class and she's like oh this is a perfect example like for you to speak to Raven about but um, the the notion of horarchy in terms of like the pyramid and um, I guess the ones that I'm really familiar with would be the pyramid with cam girls um, at the top and it goes down to oh, say maybe that, strippers. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm thinking, is that Tilly? Is that it was uh, mentioned Tilly in the, Wallace's? Yeah, or? I think it was that yeah, one yeah, that yeah. you mentioned in the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then like with full service sex workers being at the bottom of the pyramid, I... I I definitely see this a lot within my own circles too, which is 
Which makes me really sad because, again, like, there shouldn't... I really feel like there shouldn't be any kind of judgment on the type of sex work that you do. We all do sex work. But um, oh. did you want to speak a little bit about, you know, where that is drawn from, where that comes from? Yeah, I think, like, Tilly and others who... Because the, the thing about Boraki is that sex workers have been talking about it for a long time, which is yeah. really great. And, <laughs> um, for, and then you see it in research um, sporadically, maybe not by that name as, as Horarchy, but you see it around where they talk about stratification and they mm-hmm. talk about um, race, they talk about language, they talk about, you know, jobs that are seen as, like, non-contact cleaner jobs like wet padding versus full service sex work which is seen as dirtier street-based work on and off street like there's so many dichotomies and divisions and it also seems to be very um context specific too and there are so many um hierarchies or hierarchies because if you look even with you know within cultural communities like um, I remember in Vancouver, the Canadian-born Chinese were at the top yes. of that, right? And yes. so in the UK, the white British are at the top mm-hmm. of the, you know, but then it, depending on what work they do, they wouldn't necessarily be at the very top. Like if they're right. white British, but a street-based worker, um, that has a lot of um, inter, inter, I should say interference, but a lot of... Um, <laughs> police have a lot of intervention in their lives yeah um then they wouldn't be at the very top of that you know hierarchy so there's there are the types of work how you do it when you do it who you are all those things play into where you what kind of status you would have in the industry mm-hmm. how much you can charge how you're able to sort of market yourself um what prices you can command and right. also third parties who manage industries not the subcontractors but the folks who decide who's on shift what images they're going to portray and advertise as part of their services they also play a part in deciding who's valuable and who isn't right all of that is nested in our culture Mm -hmm. what the same people who we are celebrated as beautiful are the same ones who are going to do quite well in sex industries right Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. and and sexuality plays in there health plays in there there's there's so much ability like there's so much going on in those um hierarchies that i think we need to do a full full unpacking of that but just to recognize how fluid how influenced they are um and how diverse they would be across any sector and or any environment that the industry is operating within right yeah that's really interesting like i I mean even the point you you talked about like even the with the marketing that dictates like what's valuable like yeah yeah, what's what's valuable and and a lot of times in our society we're told what to buy what's where what looks good you know and so those folks who craft those messages are very much whatever their preferences are will you know, be translated in what they choose to promote, but then it's also what the market will pay for versus what the market will not pay for. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you as a woman of color as well as me, it's like mm-hmm. we know that um, there are certain looks or certain stereotypes that would be marketable and certain stereotypes about our cultures that we would move away from, you know. Mm-hmm. So there, there are lots of ways that those who you know, kind of construct the industry and help perpetuate stereotypes. Right. They, they play to, you know, play to what's most marketable. Right. That's really interesting. And but the other hierarchy was sugar babies were on top, right? Yes, I saw that one <laughs> because, too, which is interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Mainstream one dating. I think that yes. was the argument was yeah. that it mirrors mainstream dating the most, you know, um, 
the, the idea is that uh, people who sugar don't provide sexual services necessarily. They just go on dates and they're mm-hmm. you know, like escorts. They're just going yeah. on dates, meeting people, going to the theater, and then being paid or whatever. Um, so yeah, and that so that that you can see how you know that would be more seen as more sanitized mm-hmm. as compared to someone who's providing full service. In, in, a, in a street-based environment, for example. Right. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, as a former sugar baby, I thought, I was like, oh, never seen it that way. That is like, oh. I guess more like deemed socially acceptable, but also like sugaring is so glamorized as well. Yeah. And like, I guess maybe more known in like mainstream media. And it just yeah. seems like this glamorous life. And I mean, at some points, yes, it was pretty glamorous, but I... Like, conversations that I hear within my sex worker groups, they're like, oh, sugaring is just, like, escorting, but, like, way cheaper and with more emotional labor <laughs> is what I keep But hearing. did you identify as a sex worker when you were sugaring? See, I Probably didn't. Not, right? I did not. Yeah. I didn't even yeah. know that was sex work to me because I oh, was so separating and that. And that's the thing, like, even dancers and performers, some, like, because it's adult industries, but they mm-hmm. don't necessarily identify as sex workers, and they have the yes. choice, choice not to. And there's a tendency in order to avoid stigma that we just, you know, steer away from things that are not to our benefit. But mm-hmm. people have, you know, the right to choose how they identify, and, yes. and within that, they can distance themselves from um, more, you know, problematic aspects of the industries that they're in. But... It is that, like, not everyone will identify as a sex worker, as you know, and we know very right. well. Yes. Um, but that, yeah, dancers, there were rifts between dancers and, and high-end street workers and, you know, sex workers, uh, escorts, and who's sugaring, who's, uh, and, you know, there, there would be all of these infighting that happens between these populations. Yes. Um, yeah, so. Oh but it's, it's interesting that, you, as a dancer, do you, if someone said, called you a sex worker, would you identify with that? Now I would. Two two years ago, I didn't. And that's even evident in my intro, too. Strip I see at your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people, because I had some people be like, oh, strippers aren't sex workers. I'm like, well, it's how you choose to identify yourself. But I think, for me personally, as an umbrella, I think it is part of it. Uh, that's my own opinion. And I think but. the definitions need to be worked out by the people in the industries, like yourself, mm-hmm. because because uh, sometimes as a, as a practitioner or a researcher, I would say adult industries, or I would say sex industries. But then, right. yeah, there there are people who who don't feel that they're part of those industries or do like burlesque dancers. They right. sometimes they feel they're part of the industry. Sometimes yes. I hear <laughs> that they define themselves as not being part of the industry, but they're very mainstreamed part of the industry. So yes. um, one of the, we did a fundraiser with this burlesque at home group that, you know, saw themselves as part of the industry. And because maybe they're seen as more respectable, they thought it was yes. their opportunity to raise funds and attention to the issues faced by sex workers who didn't enjoy the privilege that they enjoyed. So it's, it's, it would be a really great exercise to get some clarity around the definition. So we're not, I don't want to insult anyone. No, Um, me neither. Also also want to get rid of horse stigma and sex stigma too, because, you know, I think that the legal work you do in any community, any environment shouldn't be stigmatized, whether you're a grave digger or, or involved in sex industries, like your, right. your work shouldn't be tainted. I, 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 so I want to work against that, mm-hmm. but I also don't want to offend people who 
don't identify as sex workers, but may identify as adult industry workers or right. adult content creators or whatever. You yeah. Know. yeah. So <laughs> do one of those definition things. I, I mean, should. That could be yeah. its own episode, honestly. Uh, well, the, well, and the, the language is power because, mm-hmm. you know, as we see in these in our sex worker rights movement, so many, our umbrellas been co-opted and hijacked and so much of the language is co-opted and hijacked. And mm-hmm. so... Um, if we can come up with definitions that are respectful of the diversity within the industry so that those of us who are allies can speak about the industry in respectful ways, that would be perfect. Absolutely. Oh, so great. Okay, there's so much here too. I kind of wanted to go and do a side tangent on your piece about Brexit as well. I thought that was really interesting in, in, in reading about the privilege in being white, but like white British um, and the racism that was against, like, other races, I guess, like, primarily, like, Eastern Europeans. I remember one of the participants in your book, um, she was British, but then she looked like she might not be, I guess, the quote-unquote, like, white, white. And one of her clients was like, oh, you're you're very, like, white for a foreigner or something like that? And oh, she was, was a like, white was migrant, so she well, wasn't okay. by birth. Yeah, gotcha. but she was the right kind of migrant right the right because, kind you know, yeah the right kind yeah and or the white kinds um <laughs> but in, in, in that context uh because we were leaving the eu and there were lots of public sentiments around you know um there were some falsehoods around um you know immigration and migration and europeans being in the uk economy and mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of uh, polarization in the community about mm-hmm. whether we should remain in the eu whether we should leave and because my dad collection was um done around that time and afterwards the sex workers who are speaking with um were impacted by whether we left the eu or not but also right. they were seeing how there was a preference among their clientele for white British and mm-hmm. the closest thing to white British. And if you can perform whiteness and, you know, be accept- like be able to define yourself as white British, you would do quite well. Mm-hmm. And there were ways that that was coded within the advertisement and the communications with clients. But then people who were, you know, white workers in their own context would normally be on the upper end of the hierarchy, but because... Mm-hmm they were sort of constructed out of whiteness in ways that they wouldn't have been in their home communities mm-hmm. in the UK at that time. Um, because there was that, yeah, that, that Eastern Europeans were sort of, were, were vilified and were, right. you know, seen as a drain on the UK economy. And there, there's a lot, if you go back during um, and see some of the media and the ways that populations of Europeans were being spoken about and Romanians were being spoken about, it's it's horrific and oh even gosh. in the uk the targeting of migrant sex workers and eastern european sex workers and mm-hmm. the deportations crimmigration that happens mm-hmm. um, in this population is a an extreme targeting um of that group so you we saw that in in how uh sex workers who were living dual lives how they were marketing how they were engaging with clients but then also how brexit itself was affecting their sex industry work and their square jobs yeah and then People don't normally think of like sex workers as part of the working population or part of yes. the working class. But so, the, so including what they felt about sex work and Brexit um, was important because yeah, they're just not the a population that would normally be thought about right. when we think about these geopolitical 
decisions and these big changes and these macro level changes that affect our economy. Mm -hmm. Sex workers are affected by the economy like anyone else. And usually affected quite immediately, Mm -hmm. as we saw with the COVID pandemic, when there's no specific support to sex workers. And then they they become destitute overnight Mm -hmm. because of the nature of their business and businesses and the nature of their work. Um, and particularly people who are in, um, who are involved in, sur- in survival work where, you know, or in those conditions of survival where they were you know, in desperate need of support and Absolutely. any change to the economic system affects them most directly. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that piece was was really, really interesting, too, because there were so many components to it, like in terms of just like language, the preference to speak English, the ability to move around and work across um, the EU and the racism that happens within those communities. It was really an interesting read. So thanks for that research, because I would have never like come across this (laughs) in my day to day without it. Um, I also yeah, want to, okay. I know there's like only like 15 minutes left or something, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I, was like, ah. I also want to speak about like the notion of secrecy and anonymity yeah. and how that was being used, especially for, for workers that practice duality. Um, it was really cool to, to read about, you know, the different types of secrecy and like secret keeping and how exhausting that can be, you know, trying to keep up with this lie and that lie and... <laughs> and all for, all to avoid stigma or to avoid harm on your family yes. because you're involved in sex work, right? Yes. So, you know, it, it, it's, it took a major toll because it's really difficult to hide what you do from, from people who you love mm-hmm. and also from, you know, people who you interact with in any day, everyday life. So people had to separate audiences, separate their devices, like everything. And so some people who were um, engaging in sex work in one location, like they would do go on tour Mm -hmm. and do all their sex work in one weekend or, you know, a week or two, make all the money they need to make and then go back to their home community, go back to their square job. That was one population. But then there were folks who were, you know, working and, and, living and doing sex work and square work in kind of the same vicinity where, you know, they would talk about, yeah, just worried about being recognized by the wrong person at the wrong time. Um, And so always trying to control how you're being read, what you're giving off. You want, don't want to say the wrong things, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, so that you don't give yourself away. Um, and so, yeah, they're hiding sex work from square folks and square work from sex work industry <laughs> folks. And, and, and it, it was a, quite a, a psychological and emotional, it took a, a toll on people. But yeah. then some found it quite, like they are used to doing that. Like, yeah. So it wasn't a big thing. Mm-hmm. But others, it was like this Jekyll and Hyde thing because, mm-hmm. you know, if they were to be found out and outed, they would lose like everything, everything. lose a job, family, yes. relationships, prospects, yeah. future, they would lose absolutely everything. And for the folks that I highlighted in the book, they, they were tr- like a lot of the, most of them had university degrees, university yeah. educated, and they were trained for the square jobs that they held. So mm-hmm. for them, because they, because of the precarious labor market, they couldn't, you know, find livable wages and they have to supplement to, to make ends meet but they still want to work in those careers like they, mm-hmm. they still want to maintain 
you know, a square lifestyle and a square yeah. life while doing sex work on the side. So for them, if they were ever out, if they would lose it all. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge, like a huge risk. Yeah. Huge, huge risk. So yeah, I thought that piece was really, really great to read about, and like, and just so real too, because like. Yeah, if they were to be outed, like, there goes your privacy, you can't open bank accounts, like, it's just really, a really dangerous area to be in, so I thought that was a, a really good read, and, um, yeah. yeah, and also, like, with, um, going on the notion of, like, separation, I thought it was uh, a cool piece to also read about the different rituals that people have, <laughs> I thought that was really yeah. fun, <laughs> done any of them because they had things like um especially the people who would work from home like Mm -hmm. both square and sex work from home they would some of them had a a room where they would contain their sex work and you know light candles yeah all kinds of things and then shut the door and then that walk down the hallway was when they switched into their other personas and and you know went into their private life or their square life but there were there was one person who worked in her underwear because she was like doing oh, her yeah. square job and her sex job at the same time. So it was like, <laughs> oh my god! Was, but she that's like life on standby. Like that is like she's at the ready to do any job available anytime. Totally. And so yeah, but they had some really some really neat things to kind of create that distance. Like mm-hmm. once you know the the lights are off, the sheets are clean, the yes. door is closed. That's it. That's it, yeah. You, know? you turn that part off of you. Like, I can, I can kind of relate to the <laughs> the participant that was working in their underwear because, like, I, I work from home, so I'm just on my laptop doing my square job. But then yeah. I'll take a break and shoot some content, <laughs> like, in between. Exactly. <laughs> Which is fun. Yeah. But... <laughs> doing that even like uh folks who were also in school mm-hmm. so if they you know yeah. went on tour and they yes. would see clients and in between clients they would do homework and they would you know like they're <laughs> just study. these are just industrious sex workers are just industrious like <laughs> folks that you just keeping themselves busy because yes you know there's as a sex worker there are so many there's there's so much downtime yes i was just gonna bring that up doing anything in that yes you know <laughs> It could be like a lot of, um, as you say, um, waiting around and no one ever really talks about the mundane part of sex work, of, yeah. of the paperwork, of the stuff that you have to do on your computer, like yeah. all the posts that I have to write, um, the tweets that I have to schedule or like photo editing or video editing, like no one ever talks about oh, that. And one of the participants talked to, because I was asking, because I kind of did a comparison of how much money people made in mm-hmm. each type of work to kind of, and their rationales behind it. And there were only a couple of folks who were entrepreneurs who Mm -hmm. would talk about the downtime in sex work and that, you know, by the time they're done in customer acquisition and nurturing the clients, dealing with all the, you know, stuff, they were making 15 quid an hour. (laughs) But then when they get the kind of 200 bucks an hour or 200, whatever it is an hour, they think, Oh my God, that's, that's great. But it's like, no, it took you 10 hours to make that one hour. Right. So yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of admin work and a lot of background work that people um, don't recognize. Yeah. As your last um, belt woman from Pace was talking about, it is that tra- all those transferable skills, and yes. all of that you know ingenuity, and so there there's a section on transferable skills here too, where mm-hmm. people talk about 
all of the the ways that each job kind and each industry job kind of informs each other and yes. makes them better at, at both jobs and but then there's also the things that you can't celebrate because you know it's done in sex industries for right. example and you can't celebrate that or benefit from that in a square context, context right? yeah. so there's also the downsides to that absolutely and another piece too um going about going back to what you said about like oh, well, if you factor everything in, I'm only making X amount of money. Um, and I also want to talk about like the anxiety that comes from, from gig work and from doing sex work. It's not always up here. It's a lot of yeah. ups and downs. Not every day is going to be the same. And I feel like we often don't talk about that either. Yeah, um, like all the times you blanked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it, it's, you know, and that is the beauty of, of what people are doing here when they're innovating by living a dual life because, you know, it's a boom and bust economy in, in sex industries. And one per, I think one person talked about, you know, um, they were a client popped up out of nowhere six months later. It's like, where have you been? Right? Like, you know, so, but it's like, hi, how's this going? And it's like, yeah, it's been like a year. But um, so, in order to fill, to make sure that there's like a revenue stream still coming in, mm-hmm. like, you know, people who are solely in industries are doing all kinds of work and diversifying within industries. But yes. these folks are also just diversifying outside of industries. So they have their square job, yes. bread and butter job. Even though it's low pay for high time investment, it's still that regular check, yes. and so they'll keep doing that. And then, you know, at least sometimes their some of their basic needs or most of their basic needs are paid, and then mm-hmm. their industry work can supplement and can get them in the financial situation that they um, want to be in in order to feel free, um, yeah. in order to take care of their kids, in order to you know um, just have a better quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is that you know. But the sad thing is when you're in like commission sales in your square job mm-hmm. and sex industry, I wouldn't recommend that. No, no. <laughs> funding those two kind of work um, because yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be really unpredictable and it's, yes. it's psychologically very difficult to plan a life when you don't know you know what where your money's coming from. You don't know you can't you can't plan ahead when you don't have any sort of income security or totally. any idea of how much money you're gonna bring in. Yeah, it's it's really it's really exhausting it's very stressful as someone that was like laid off during the during covid you know losing like all of my jobs i'm like okay well now what am i gonna do and this is like a reality for for many people i mean not just talking about covid but also like this is people's realities like not knowing when the next client's going to come in not knowing when the next paycheck's going to come in is a really scary feeling and yeah yeah, i'm glad that like a lot of the participants also touched on that too because you know sometimes people just think sex workers oh you're just rolling in money (laughs) yeah 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 there's a couple i think there's a a couple, like, I think there's a couple of clients or people, participants that talked about that, contributors, and there's a male worker yes. that talks about that. He was so frustrated yes. by that, that people just thought, oh, he's a sex worker, he's got a lot of money. It's like, well, actually, no, no. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm struggling like everybody else. I'm trying to get by like everyone else. So mm-hmm. some of those old school myths, they're either like, um, you know, the really impoverished worker or... The, the rich, rich upper end, but it's like mm-hmm. actually most workers are working class, middle class yes. people, like totally just trying, trying to trying to get by. And so um, I hope that if anything, this book 
expands who people think trade sex and mm-hmm. also brings some understanding between you know just understanding why people are living a dual life why people engage in sex work what's the yes. logic behind it what sacrifices they're making and then also looking at our larger labor market because we're creating precarity we're yes. creating these fragmented underpaid jobs where mm-hmm. nobody has health coverage and every, you know like every all the costs of supporting you know workers are externalized so we're not really employees we're just workers and you know mm-hmm. like those kinds of things that you know the erosion of labor rights and right. collective bargaining and you know all those things that, that make it so that your work is valued and you're compensated appropriately we've eroded all of those things right. so it's no surprise that people are trying to do all kinds of gigging on the side to make a whole salary um out mm-hmm. of all these little pieces of jobs like yeah it's, it's no surprise we're designing our our work environment, our labor markets that way. And right. what's the end game? Like we're all circling the drain here, right? Like mm-hmm. how, how long is this going to go on? Like we have to decide about how we're going to redesign um, workplaces, how we're going to redesign our our labor market so that we're actually paying people what they're worth. Absolutely. Um, yes. And that's even in industries. That's everywhere, yes. right? Like it's everywhere. It's just pay people what what they're worth yeah like not just in sex industries but like for example like I'm looking for another job right now too and like I look at the wages and they're just so laughable and just who can live off of this I remember like receiving a contract and it was like $16 an hour and nothing wrong with that but that's not where I am at in my career and it's just like what is up with all these like lowballing efforts and just like it's just it's really 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 frustrating and so it's profits over people and over yeah. people's well-being right and it's mm-hmm. just like if if as a capitalist if i can cut corners and underpay my workers and overprice my goods because mm-hmm. if you talk about you you talked about your covid poverty and mm-hmm. losing jobs and then you think about you know how many millionaires and billionaires were produced through through For during COVID. The yeah i know which is like <laughs> ridiculous you know it's just it's so it's so stark yeah that there are people who still can't have, have no food and still have don't have stable work and you know the the variants are alive and well and I guess we're all demasking and running about now I don't know why but you know <laughs> like in, in the UK it's Freedom Day I guess so you know, it's just like uh, we have the Delta strain it's a prominent strain but you know I guess that doesn't matter but you know um, we like it's just it's it's absolute it's absolute chaos and so yeah. there has to be either promotion of a guaranteed livable income yes. where we know that nobody dips below the poverty line no matter what job you're doing yes. so that you're never desperate um, yes. to, you know, when you're not, it, we're not going to be able to force people like to engage in forced labor or to exploit people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at least there's a baseline where we know that there's like dignity and there's a certain level of income and housing and health and education that every human being is entitled to. Right. And then it should matter less what people choose to do for their work because they'll have choice and they'll have the right to, of refusal and not if you turning down your next date doesn't mean that you're homeless, right? Like, yeah. So, you know, yeah. we have to set up those conditions for, um, for freedom, liberation, workers' rights, choice, humanity, dignity, all of those things. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, you already answered my last question in terms of like, what do you hope readers will get from reading your book? <laughs> You already went right into it, but oh, did you want to add anything There's else like to that? There's a long list of what I'd like to see, but yeah, that's, <laughs> some, that's, that's part of it. 
Well, before I let you go, like, where can we find, one, the book, and where can we find more information either about you or about NUM? Sure. You can um, Google nationalugglymugs.org, and all of the projects and things that we're working on is available there. We have an announcements page that will be up soon. It's not up now, but it'll show um, our some of the research that we're doing in those activities. And then the book is available at policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk, <laughs> and you'll link, um, but it's a really long dashes, but you can Google uh, work money and duality, trading sex as a side hustle, and um, I hope people, more people read it. And, you know, it's like anything else. It's the sex working community will have a look at it, mm-hmm. will take what's useful, will build on it, and will critique what, what they don't agree with. But I think it's a starting place for understanding the kinds of innovative kinds of innovation and the diversity of sex workers and how people are resisting poverty and resisting forms of oppression and so you know all power to people in industries amazing and i actually have a question for you are you going to be writing another book in the future or or not (laughs) um well i have a couple papers in the cooker but they're co-written pieces um Mm. i would be interested in a postdoc or partnering to do a larger research study on duality. Yeah. Ideally, it would be a transnational study with wow. a Canadian sample and yes. um, a UK sample. Um, it, it's been just an incredible, enlightening journey learning mm-hmm. from people mm-hmm. and doing this kind of research. But what I will focus on in the future, not necessarily sex work and square work, but more about the work that people hide and the oh. work that people are... because. The sex work and square work continuum is some people have really sexualized square jobs Mm. and some people in sex industries don't consider their work sex industry. Especially if you're doing admin and you're a booking girl or something like that, you you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself a sex worker in sex industries necessarily. But I'm more interested in the, the challenges around hiding work and why people do it and how they manage it um wow some of the secret keeping and those kinds of things so i'm interested in in that a bit more oh that's super interesting i can't wait to keep up with you and everything that you do because your work is fascinating and i'm so happy to have met you and to have connected with you and i know this took a long time coming and like (laughs) like let's reschedule no let's do this month and (laughs) but we're finally here so Thank you, Raven, so much for your time. Um, Your book was excellent. I'm definitely going to be picking up a copy. And everyone else listening, it's new episodes every single Sunday. It is Stripped by Sia on Instagram. Also, Stripped by Sia on Twitter. Also, my personal Instagram is Sia Steph if you want to at me there. And we'll catch everyone in for another episode next Sunday. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Listening to Strip by Sia, hosted, produced, and edited by Steph Sia, artwork by Maria Bellandorama, music by Ted D, and photography by Ian Davern. <laughs>